Hope everyone had a good New Year's Day. I don't know if many of you got to eat greens and black-eyed peas and cornbread, but if you did, you're lucky, you're fortunate, and that's good. It's good to see everybody this evening. We're continuing tonight our series on the parables of the Old Testament. We took a break last week for Christmas, but we're continuing our series from two weeks ago when uh, we've been talking about these parables. And many of them have been obscure. Uh, Many of them you might have read by, but you just didn't pay much attention to them or didn't understand them because they're not explained in great detail. But tonight's parable, I feel confident you've heard before. In fact, I feel that you've heard many lessons from it before. It comes from 2 Samuel chapter 12, and it's told in the aftermath of David's Dishonor, his greatest sin, the sin with Bathsheba and the death of her husband Uriah. And as usual, I want to begin tonight by reading from 2 Samuel chapter 12, reading the parable, starting in verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. There's more there, but we'll stop reading there for now. Maybe you've heard the little story by Washington Irving, Rip Van Winkle. It's about this fellow who fell asleep in a cave, and he didn't wake up for 20 years. And during that 20-year time frame, he missed all kinds of things. He, he missed the death of his wife. He missed uh, the entire Revolutionary War. He woke up, and his uh, beard was a foot long and gray. He, of course, was a lot older than he had been when he went to sleep. He went into town, and people were dressed in unfamiliar ways. A lot of things had changed in the town. And uh, he was just... Very, uh, very perplexed as to what had happened. Uh, someone asked him who he had voted for in the last election. He said he was a subject of King George III. He had no idea that the United States of America had been formed while he had been asleep. All these things changed and happened. And he was very confused and bewildered when he awoke from his, from his slumber. I remember a, a classmate of mine at Fried Hardeman who went to bed late one Friday night and woke up on a Sunday morning. He didn't realize he'd missed the entire Saturday until his mother called him to breakfast and said, it's time to get ready for church. And he was confused. And you can, rem- you can imagine the kind of confusion that you have when you awake from a slumber like that, a long, deep sleep. And that's really what you see happening with King David here. It's not his body that has been asleep, but it's his conscience He's been in a long, deep slumber, and Nathan was sent to him to wake him up. And he woke him up with this parable. Now, the parable itself is is fairly straightforward. It's pretty easy to understand. 
Unlike some of the ones we've been going over, uh, we can look at it and read through it one time and get the points of analogy. David, for example, is the rich man. Uh, Uriah is the poor man. Bathsheba is the ewe lamb, the little pet lamb. And David had stolen her and had killed her husband. And we know that story well, and all of that makes pretty sense. Pretty, pretty good sense. And the point of the parable is so plain that David actually passes sentence on himself. You recall that uh, he said in verses 5 and 6, after his anger had been kindled, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. I think uh, Clarence McCartney put it well when he commented on this parable in 2 Samuel 12 saying, It is easy to condemn in others what we condone in ourselves. That's true, isn't it? And that's what David's doing here. He's condemning in others, he assumed these to be real people in the story Nathan told, what he was actually doing, but he condoned in himself. And we know this to be true because we've done it ourselves. It's a human trait the human capability that we really need to do away with. The last time we met together on parables of the Old Testament, we studied a parable from 1 Kings chapter 20, where an unnamed prophet did this same thing with uh, King Ahab. He told a parable about the escaped prisoner, and the king was tricked into passing sentence on himself. He could see in others what he couldn't see in himself, and this is what is happening with David. Nathan cleverly turns the parable on him as well. The way he uses this parable is just as interesting to me as the parable itself. And perhaps God recorded this whole incident of David's life so we could see the manner in which he was able to wake his conscience up, the way Nathan confronted him. I think that we know the moral cautionary tale and so what I want to focus on tonight is the manner in which David was able to repent and was able to get back on track with God and be forgiven of his sin. Because many a soul has fallen into the deep pit of a sleeping conscience and has, has done many awful things without seeing in himself what he could see in other people. And so we're going to focus on the sleeping conscience, how it can be awakened, and what life looks like for the sinner after this awakening. Let's start, number one, with the sleep. And again, I'm talking about the conscience being asleep here. First of all, it's a dangerous sleep. It's dangerous because the conscience is a God-given tool that tells us to do what is right and to avoid what is wrong. It's an urge within us. It's a part of our being made in God's image. It tells us... We ought to do things that we know to be good. It makes us feel guilty or feel shame whenever we violate it and do what we know we shouldn't do. And so we need, it's a great resource that God has given us. It's a tool for righteousness. Now, if we ignore it very long, eventually it doesn't do us any, well, any good. It goes to sleep. In other words, it becomes desensitized. And we don't feel it urging us in one way or the other any longer. And this, of course, is what was happening to David. 
If your conscience goes to sleep, there's nothing within you to push you in the right direction. And so it's a very dangerous sleep. And secondly, I want you to see that even though it is a sleep, it is a restless sleep. It's very interesting to see David's behavior after he commits adultery with Bathsheba and kills her husband. After the period of mourning for Uriah's death had ended, he sends for Bathsheba, he makes her his wife. Uh, she conceives a child. At least six months have gone by. We can judge that according to the time of the birth of the child. So six months go by. What's going on in David's head? What's going on in his mind? Does he feel guilty? Is his conscience haunting him at all? When he slept, were there images of Uriah on the battlefield passing through his mind? Was he worried that he would be discovered? Was he worried what God thought? Did he pray to God during this time? Did he consult the scriptures? Did he worship at all? You know, we don't have those details, but we do have a few hints as to the state of his soul during this time period. First of all, look at the historical books. I'm talking about 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles that talk about David's life during this period. And you'll see some troubling things. After the affair, David's general Joab sends word that he has successfully conquered the Ammonite city of Rabbah. And he wants David to come as king and preside over the official taking of the city. So David goes and under his orders, some very disturbing things seem to happen. And it depends on what translation you're reading from as to what you think is going on. I'm going to compare the King James to the English Standard Version. So here's the King James rendering of 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 31. Now look at this. He brought forth the people that were in Rabbah and put them under saws and under harrows of iron and under axes of iron and made them pass through the brick kiln. Now, you know what a saw is and you know what an axe is. A harrow is a, a tine or tiller or something to break up fallow ground. So we're talking about sharp metal objects, heavy objects, things for cutting, plowing, digging. And it can't be good if he put people under them. That's what the King James Version says. What's a brick kiln? A brick kiln is a furnace for for making bricks. And so if he makes them pass through it, we assume that he is doing something horrible here to these captives. Who were the captives? Were they prisoners of war? Uh, were they innocent men and women? We don't know exactly who they were. And we're not exactly sure what was going on here because so little is said. We don't have a whole lot of detail. There is a parallel passage to this in 1 Chronicles you can turn over and look at it in 1 Chronicles chapter 20 in verse 3. It doesn't make David look any better in the King James translation. Here's what it says. And he brought out the people that were in Rabbah and cut them with saws and with harrows of iron and with axes. Even so dealt David with all the cities of the children of Ammon. So here we have the verb, instead of just putting them under these objects... He's cutting them with them, and it doesn't say he just does it in Rabbah, but in all the cities of the Ammonites. Now, when you go to the English Standard Version or some of the other modern translations, 
1 Samuel 12, 31 reads like this. He brought out the people who were in Rabbah and set them to labor. Set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. So the ESV makes it seem a little more palatable that he was just causing them to labor at these implements and not passing through the the furnaces, but laboring at the furnaces. If you consult the ESV in 1 Chronicles 20, verse 3, which the King James uses the word cut, it says something similar to this. It says that they labored under these iron implements, but there's a footnote there that says the verb could be translated in Hebrew. In fact, it says the Hebrew original says he sawed them, S-A-W-E-D, he sawed them which doesn't sound very good at all. So even in the ESV, which tries to soften the language, you have some very disturbing information. Now, why would a man like David behave that way? Well, I think it's evidence that although his conscience was sleeping, it was uneasy, it was disturbed, it was troubled. He was acting out in this way because something was very seriously amiss in this man's heart. We also have the Psalms, where he tells us his heart after the fact. I'm thinking in particular about Psalm 32, where he talks about his time after meeting with Nathan, but also his time before the parable was told. And uh, you can read about that in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. And here's what he says. When I kept silent, in other words, during these six months after I committed adultery and murder and I didn't confess my sin, during that time when I kept silent, he says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. He prays to God for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. The sleeping conscience, first of all, it is a dangerous sleep because you have lost that basic urge God gave you to deter you from sin, and it is a disturbing sleep. It may be a sleep, but it is an uneasy, troubling sleep, as we see from David's behavior. So in the second place, after noting the sleep, let's look at the alarm. Now, the alarm here is Nathan. Nathan tells the parable. David passes sentence unknowingly on himself. This man deserves to die. The lamb shall be restored fourfold because he hasn't shown any pity. And then Nathan, I imagine him pointing his finger at David, says, verse 7, You are the man. Now, that's the alarm. That's the wake-up call. That's when his conscience was pricked. David, you are the man. At great risk to his life, Nathan confronted this king because God sent him to do something very necessary to somebody in this bad position. Someone with a sleeping conscience needs something or someone to wake him up, or his soul will be forever lost. 
When, as we said in the introduction, whenever you're in this condition, you can see sin in others that you're unable to see in yourself. It's like a magnifying glass. You look through one side of the glass, from one side of the glass through at something, and it magnifies it. It makes it look bigger. You flip the glass, and what happens to the object? It looks smaller. And so this condition is like a magnifying glass. You look at other sins through the lens in a way that makes them look bigger, but when you look at your own sins, you flip the glass, and your sins look smaller by comparison. That's a very dangerous situation. In Gulliver's Travels, uh, Jonathan Swift talks about this race of people called the Yahoos. Now, maybe you've never read Gulliver's Travels, but maybe you've called somebody a Yahoo before. It's not a compliment, right? These are, these are barbaric savages. And they have this problem. There's one point in the story where Swift says, the reason usually assigned was the odiousness of their own shapes, which all could see in the rest, but not in themselves. In his poem, To a Louse, Robert Burns says, Oh, would some gift, oh, would some power the gift give us to see ourselves as others see us. That would be a very valuable talent to have. Sadly, that's one of our shortcomings. We tend to give ourselves a pass on things that we would never be gracious about in others. And that's when God in His mercy intervenes with servants like Nathan who ring the alarm to shake us from our sleep. Hamlet, suspecting his uncle Claudius in his father's murder, stages a play. And in the play, there's a scene in which the king's rival assassinates the king by putting a drop of poison in his ear. And so when it's time for the play, he invites his uncle to see the play, and he watches him very closely during that scene. And that scene was like a wake-up call. And his uncle sees it, he gets very uncomfortable, he rises and runs out of the room, and Hamlet then suspects his uncle as the culprit. We need wake-up calls for sleeping consciences. Jonah literally fell asleep on the ship headed to Tarshish, running away from the Lord's command to go to Nineveh and preach to that great city, repent or you will be destroyed in 40 days. Jonah literally went to sleep and it took a pagan captain to shake him awake and say to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Saul of Tarsus thought he was doing right because his conscience was, was asleep. It had been misprogrammed by years of tradition. But on the road to Damascus, where he was going to persecute Christians, the Lord gave him a wake-up call. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And that day his eyes were opened as he went physically blind. He gained spiritual sight. And he was converted. He was forever changed. God sends Nathans into our lives. And we need to pay attention to them. They're gifts to us. Sometimes they make us very uncomfortable. I would imagine David felt very uncomfortable 
when Nathan came to shake him from his sleep. But we need them in our lives. Why do we need preachers? Paul says in Romans 10, 14, how are they to hear without someone preaching? Why do we need churches? So we can confess our sins to one another and pray for one another, James says, so that you may be healed, James chapter 5, verse 16. Why do we need Christian brothers and sisters in our lives who will hold us accountable and keep us responsible for our sins? Because the person who brings back a sinner from his wandering saves his soul from death and hides a multitude of sins, James chapter 5, verse 20. Why do we need to pray and read the Word of God? Because we may not realize how far away we have strayed from God's will. And when we read the Word and compare it with our lives, it's like an alarm that goes off, awakening our conscience. David prayed in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Maybe after all of this had happened, he said, Search me, O God, and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That would be a great prayer for all of us to pray every time we open God's Word to read it for ourselves. Search me. See if there's any grievous way in me. It awakens the conscience. And so the alarm. We all need these alarms in our lives. Let's turn in the third place to notice the awakening. Finally awake and fully conscious, David confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. That's verse 13. I have sinned against the Lord. Now notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, I've sinned, but haven't we all? He didn't say, I've sinned, but look at his sin. It's much worse than my sin. After what we have seen, I don't know if David could have found anybody to compare himself to, but he didn't say that. He didn't say, I've sinned because my family is really messed up. He didn't say, I've sinned because that's the way God made me. I can't help it. It's in my DNA. He didn't say, I've done a wrong thing, but that's not who I really am. You can separate me from that thing. That's not what he said. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. He connected his sin to the source of all righteousness. And he recognized that at the heart, what he had done is he had rebelled against the most important person in his life, the Lord God. He does the same thing in the psalm related to this period of his life, Psalm 51. We can look at the whole psalm and get a lot from it about this period in his life, but I want to focus on what he says in verse 4 of Psalm 51. Against you, he says, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I have a slide on this. Okay, there it is. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He spoke plainly and directly, and just like that, the Lord forgave his sin. We talked about Psalm 32 a moment ago, another psalm related to this, this period of his life. We talked about his state of mind, how he felt that his that the heavy hand of God was on him 
when he was silent all those times? Let's go back to it and notice what he says about his forgiveness, about the awakening. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. You go down to verse 5, and he says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. This stage is often forgotten, but it's so very important to notice that after his sleeping conscience was awakened, after he, the alarm woke him from his slumber, he rose up from his slumber and confessed his sin. Do you have a snooze button on your alarm clock or your phone? Why did they put that in the iPhone? I don't know. It's, it's a terrible thing, really, because you just fool yourself every night. You set, it, set your clock for 5.30. You know you're not getting up at 5.30. You're planning to get up at 6 if you don't accidentally turn your phone off by trying to hit the snooze button. Everybody has a snooze button, right? If you hit the snooze button when the alarm comes, you might just keep on sleeping. Now, if you get this alarm, this wake-up call from a parent, from an elder, from a preacher, from your studies of the Word of God, from a trusted brother or sister in Christ, your conscience has been asleep a long time, and somebody comes to you and says, listen, the way you are living and the choices you are making are not right, and I'm coming to you in love, and I'm trying to tell you that you need to repent before it's too late. And if you don't confess your sins, it's like hitting the snooze button over and over again till eventually you just turn the alarm off and go back to sleep. Now, in real sleep, you might miss a day of work. You might be late to school. You can overcome that. When it comes to spiritual sleep, that could have everlasting consequences. We can't hit the snooze button. The word confess in the New Testament comes from a Greek word, homologeo, which literally means to say the same thing. And when we confess Jesus, when we're converted and become Christians, we're confessing this, we're saying the same thing that God says about his son. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. What is a confession of sin? It's saying the same thing about sin that God says about sin. I have committed an evil thing, and I have sinned fundamentally against my Lord, the Creator, the Judge of all mankind. And I am not worthy of life. I deserve the wages of sin, which is death. That's what confession is. And it's a way to bring your life back into alignment with God's. It's bringing your heart back into alignment with His heart so that your behavior will follow suit. God will not save the sinner who fails to take this step, who hits the snooze button, keeps his conscience asleep despite the alarm. But He does save the one who confesses. 
1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is there something you need to confess? Maybe it's something that's just between you and God. It's not known. It's a private problem. You need to take care of that in prayer with God immediately, right now if possible. The next time you go to God in prayer, you need to say to Him, just honestly and openly, you need to be honest with yourself and say, I have sinned and committed a great evil against you. I repent and I'm not going to do it anymore. Maybe it's something more widely known. And you need to go to a person that you have hurt and you need to confess their sins. Or maybe it's a struggle that you're having that you can't overcome on your own. You need to be held accountable. You need it to be out in the open so that you can have someone to help you when you're not strong. Go to the person that you can trust. Confess your sin. Do it as soon as you possibly can. Maybe it's a sin that's known. You know, the church is told there are certain sins that we don't pray about. John says in 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, that if anyone commits a sin not leading to death, we should pray for him and he will be forgiven. Those that have committed sins that do not lead to death. He says, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin, he says, that does not lead to death. What is John talking about? Well, he's assuming we've read chapter 1, which I referred to a moment ago, which says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's assuming that we know that God will forgive any sin that's confessed and repented of. That's the sin that does not lead to death. And if somebody's confessed their sins, then the church can pray for him, expecting the forgiveness of sin. But what good is it to, to pray for forgiveness for one who does not recognize the sin in himself and has not repented because the condition for forgiveness hasn't been met? God says, don't pray for that. And that's why, among other reasons, we have invitation songs and give opportunities for people to come forward because some people need to make known their, their repentance. They need to confess publicly that they're not who they used to be, that they recognize their sin, that they want to do better. They need the prayers of the church. And so what I'm saying is, if you have some sin that needs to be confessed, think about how it should be confessed. And don't put it off another moment. Confess your sin now. Doing otherwise is like hitting the snooze button on an alarm clock that you're not sure will ever come back on again. You can't take that risk. The stakes are too high. Wake up when the alarm sounds. Really quickly, I want to discuss the new normal. A lot of times when we talk about David, we don't talk about this part. He wakes up to a completely different world. He went to sleep in one world. He wakes up in a different world. Every morning we wake up to a slightly different world. The world was different this morning than it was yesterday morning. And that was true of David, spiritually speaking. What I mean is Nathan revealed that although he was forgiven, David would suffer consequences for his sins. I'm going to summarize here what he tells David in verses 10 through 15. He says, first of all, the sword would not depart from his house. 
That means death and turmoil would trouble his family from that day forward. And if you know David's story, you know it was full of anguish and heartache over the, the trials that his children put him through, the trials in his family from that day to the day of his death. Number two, Nathan said that David would lose his wives just as Uriah lost Bathsheba. And that also came to pass. And then finally he says that his son by Bathsheba would die. Probably the most tragic news of all. And so he woke up to a world that he had had a hand in destroying. He had wrecked his life. He was forgiven, but because his his conscience had been asleep for so long, he had done a lot of damage that couldn't be undone. Now here's the lesson. The longer the coma, the worse the destruction. The longer you are asleep, the more destruction happens. Just think about 2 Samuel chapter 11. How many alarms had been going off? How many opportunities did David have to turn around before it was too late? It all started in verse 1 with him not going out to battle with his armies against the Ammonites. David always went to battle with his armies. That night, who knows why, he didn't go. Now, if he had stopped and realized this and packed up his gear and went out on the battlefield where he was supposed to be as the the king of this army, he wouldn't have suffered many consequences for his wrongdoing. But he went a step further. He went out on the rooftop. In his idleness, he was looking around. He saw through a window a woman bathing, and he allowed his eyes to linger on that image, another sin. But he could have stopped right there, and not much damage would have been done. But he went a step further. He called for her. He committed adultery with her. He had another opportunity. He could have stopped. But no, he went another step further. He wanted to cover up the sin. So in deceit, he called her husband off the battlefield, tried to, tried, tried to arrange things where his sin would be covered up. Uriah had too much integrity for that. It didn't work. But still, he could have stopped shy of adultery and deceit. He could have repented right there and minimized the damage. But no, he had to take it another step and murder an innocent man. A man who had been his friend He went all the way. The longer the coma, the more the damage. And this damage got to this point because David didn't stop again and again and again. And here's what I want you to understand. Sin is progressive. And if you start, it will take you to a place you never imagined you would be able to get to. No one starts down this road thinking they will get as far as they wind up going. David learned that the hard way. We don't have to. We might wake up after confession to a new normal, but it doesn't have to be as devastating as it was for David. James said each person is tempted when he is is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do you see the progression of sin there? 
It starts out as a child, as a baby. But if we nurse it, and we feed it, and we nourish it, we protect it, we hide it, we keep it safe, it grows into a monster that brings forth our demise. And so let David's life be a warning to all of us. God took this great hero of the Bible and he showed us everything about him, warts and all. Why do you think he put David's legacy through this? Because it's important for us to realize, number one, that we can go as far down as David went and come back from it. But number two, the deeper we go, the worse it gets. There will be consequences. But they don't have to be as bad as they were for David. So beware, lest the Rip Van Winkle effect take over your life. And your conscience goes to sleep for a long, long time. And you wake up confused and puzzled and unsure of the world you are in. And if that happens, God may send an alarm to your life. Maybe a scripture. Maybe a friend. Maybe a, a mentor. A word from his, from his scripture that, that warns you of the path you are on. Don't hit the snooze button. Rise up from your sleep. Confess your sins. And realize there may be consequences. But in that new normal, whatever it is, God is forgiving. He is merciful. And there is a new life for you. A way forward because of the grace and mercy that comes through Jesus Christ. And tonight, maybe you need to confess sin. Maybe there's something in your life that you need to, to ask for prayers about. That's what we're here for. Maybe you need to come forward during the singing of the invitation song. Maybe you just need to pull somebody aside tonight and say, listen, can we talk? I need some help. I need some prayer. It doesn't take very long. Sit down and have a conversation with somebody. Maybe you just need to get down on your knees in private, in prayer, when you get home tonight, and deal with your sin by confessing it to God. Whatever the need is, it's time to wake up. Here is your alarm. Are you going to hit the snooze button? Or are you going to rise up, trust in God, and let Him bring you forward into new life? The choice is yours. We're going to sing this invitation song. If we can help you in any way, please come right now as we stand together and as we sing.